It's wonderful to be in Cleveland. Um, you guys could probably tell from my accent that I'm, I'm not a New Yorker. And uh, there are Orthodox Jews in America outside of New York, that is true, uh, much to the, to the shock of the New Yorkers. But yeah, I'm, I'm originally from Chicago, which is why I speak normal. So <laughs> you'll, you'll understand my accent here in Cleveland. I cannot tell you how much labor it took me to, um, after I ac actually had children, to stop saying roof instead of roof. But my children would laugh every time I would say it, so I changed over to roof, which is, still takes conscious effort. Um, so thank you to the committee who organized tonight. A lot of work went into... There are parts of, obviously, this evening that I have no knowledge of, but just the parts that I do know about basically planning tonight's uh, lecture and getting the topic just right and planning what we should really be focusing on. There was so much thought and care put into that process, and it just felt really good to be part of that. And if my experience with tonight's event was indicative of the thought and the care that uh, Chaviva this wonderful institution, this, uh, this girls' high school puts into everything else that they do, then I can assure you that uh, the parent body has, has done very well and uh, made a very good choice of where to send your daughters. Um, we're going to talk tonight about emotional intelligence or emotionally intelligent parenting. And I think the first thing that I want to do is just I want to put it out there and say that it's a little bit disheartening that I even have to, and I'm not saying for this audience, this, you're probably what they call preaching to the choir, so everything I'm going to tell you, you probably already know and already agree with. But when I do speak to... Uh, to Jewish crowds, it is a little bit disheartening that there's confusion or a lack of confidence or lack of clarity about terms. Forget about the term because it's an English term, but let's just say the idea represented by emotionally, emotionally intelligent parenting, when, when parents are, they're not even sure, is that Jewish? Is that really, is that, is that authentic or is that like one of those new modern secular things that we're doing as a concession to the big world out there. And um, I just want to put it up front. If you get nothing else from my talk tonight, then I'll just, I'll put it as a statement at the very beginning. And that is that there could be nothing more quintessentially Jewish than loving, warm, bonded parent-child relationships, which serve as the foundation for the transmission of our, our sacred heritage. And the fact that we even have to say that, it's like, why should we even have to say that? Jewish parents are the most loving, most devoted parents. That, I mean, it's a stereotype for crying out loud. 
Like there's a joke, they say, what's the definition of a genius? An average student with a Jewish mother. <laughs> or there's another one about the Jewish mother who uh, she's taking her five-year-old son to his first day of kindergarten and she's getting him ready and she says, uh, Bubala, it's your first day, come and uh, I'll walk you to the bus. And they're waiting for the bus and she says, Tayerke, uh, this is the bus, this is the bus driver, you should behave on the bus. She says, Ziskite, I want you to be good for your, for your teacher. And at the, uh, the end of the day, she comes and she uh, picks him up at the bus stop. And she says to him, uh, did you learn anything today? He says, yes. She says, what? He says, I learned that my name is David. <laughs> okay. So the, the effusive, loving, warm uh, parenting style is, is, is a trademark of Judaism. But uh, I guess it helps to explain it a little bit more, to talk about it a little bit more. So, uh, so that's what I'm going to try to do tonight. Um, I'll try to talk about the what, the why, and the how. Yeah, okay. And just at the end, make sure that I actually did that. that, that would, that's my, my uh, goal with Hashem's help. So what are we talking about? The what? Um, uh, emotionally intelligent parenting. Um, you know, the Chofetz Chaim had a son who was his successor. He actually took over the Rabbanis. He was the rabbi after the, the Chofetz Chaim's uh, passing. He was the he, he was the, the Chofetz Chaim's Bechoyer, his firstborn, Reb Arya Leib. And he actually he put together a, a sefer called Michtove Balea Chofetz Chaim, which are letters of his father. And there's a Hagdama, he writes, uh, a little preface to the, to the Michtovim, to the letters. And in that preface, he, he speaks a little bit about his front row seat to observe his father's conduct as a community leader and as, as a rabbi and a Rosh Hashiva, but he also talks about his father as a father and who else could write about such a thing that better than, uh, or than uh, the, the Chofetz Chaim's own son, his firstborn son. So Rabbi Yaleb writes over there something that I think if I were to tell you that you heard somebody say this out in the parking lot tonight, you might wonder, oh, where did this guy get this? Maybe he's reading self-help books. Maybe he's a little modern. Maybe he's been influenced by the outside world. Uh, Rabbi Yaleb says that my brothers and I, in our relationship with our father, we saw our father and he presented himself as our friend. Now, I know, and I know this from experience, that the minute you tell people, be your child's friend, they get very, very nervous. And my first question is, okay, why? Why does that make you nervous? And usually the response I get is, well, I'm not my child's friend, I'm my child's parent. Okay, are they mutually exclusive? Chovetz Chaim's son didn't seem to think so, so I'm just wondering, are they mutually exclusive? I'm not my son's, 
I'm not my child's uh, friend, I'm their parent. Okay, but then the, the, the bigger question is, supposedly you're saying that because it, it's some way uh, it flies in the face of your values, then I would ask you to tell me what's the Torah source that prohibits such a relationship. Like ostensibly you're saying on, on grounds of Torah values, you don't want to, God forbid, be your child's friend. So my question is, okay, where does it say that? Give me the source where it says you're not supposed to do that. Or is it possible that that sentiment itself comes from the outside world and we just heard one person say it to another person and it just sort of became grandfathered in as uh, accepted wisdom. So I just want to clarify that having a child look at a parent as a friend was good enough for the Chofetz Chaim's family and I think it's good enough for any God-fearing Jew. And I don't think there's any case that could be made that it's problematic. Unless, of course, maybe you have some secular source. But in that case, isn't that the whole reason that you were afraid of it, that you thought it was something that was from outside of Judaism? So, at any rate, I, I just want to give everyone permission to actually be a child's friend and not just because it's more pleasant to be a friend than to be an authority figure, a policeman, um, but actually because, and this hopefully with Hashem's help I'll be able to explain tonight, this is just going to facilitate good chinuch all around. There's, there's nothing more powerful, there's nothing that's a, a more successful catalyst to making everything go smoothly than our children being able to emotionally depend upon us and view us as safe people, trustworthy people who they want to come to and learn from. Now I want to clarify something. When I say that we're meant to be our children's friends, I want to make it very clear what I do not mean and maybe this is where the, uh, the, the resistance is coming from, or at least on a subconscious level, is when people think of, the, of this idea of being a child's friend, they think of it as a two-way street. That my child is also my friend. And I just want to clarify that that's not what we're speaking about. And I would even say, chas v'shalom, God forbid. Because if we understand parenting and we understand the God-given role that we were entrusted with, really we're there for our children. We're meant to provide for them. We provide them with everything. And one of the things we provide them with is safety, not just physical safety, but emotional safety. And the best description I have for describing a person who's emotionally safe is a friend. However, and I want to make this extremely, extremely at the risk of even belaboring the point, explicitly clear, we are not meant to turn to our children to provide our emotional needs. So we shouldn't be looking to our children for emotional safety. And unfortunately, that does happen sometimes. And it's actually, I don't like to use shocking words, and, I, and I'm using this word 
very, very carefully, but it's actually an insidious form of abuse. When, and there are terms for it in the clinical world, though they call it enmeshment or parentification, parentification of a child, where a parent flips the paradigm and they try to use the child as a nurturer and a caregiver or even a surrogate spouse in some cases. And, and, and that's terribly destructive. And every time I give my parenting course, I have a parenting course, uh, which Baruch Hashem at this point, close to 2,000 parents have taken. And uh, whenever we speak about this idea, it's, uh, I think it's week four when this idea eventually comes up. And I mentioned this idea of being there for our children to prov provide emotional support for them. But they're not there to provide emotional support for us. And I mentioned that when, when parents do that, how, uh, how damaging that is, not only to the parent-child relationship, but to a child's basic sense of security. And it, it's, a, it's a wound, an emotional wound that they, they need to overcome later in life. Um, whenever I'll mention that, there will always be right away, right after class, four, five, six, depending on how big the group is, uh, parents will come over and say, that's, you're describing me, that's my childhood, that's precisely what happened to me. I was parentified, I was used by my parent to give my parent validation, and, and I realize now how much that affected me. So I want to make it very clear. Hashem gave us a mitzvah. And when Hashem gives us a mitzvah, He gives us, He backs up all of the, the resources that we're going to need in order to follow through on that mitzvah. So we lean on Hashem so that our children can lean on us. We're not meant to ask our children to validate us. Our children's job is not to make us feel safe or to tell us that we're good or give us approval. That will be a, a, an inversion of the entire parent-child relationship. And I just want to make that very, very clear, that we're not going to do that. That is taking. We are meant to provide for our children, not to take from them. But what I do want to make clear is that being the provider of emotional stability and trust and safety in our children's lives, that's not just something that makes life more pleasant. It's a deal breaker. It's, it's, I would almost say it's impossible to be mechanich your child if you don't do that. And I guess that's, that's what I want to talk about that bonding with our children is a prerequisite to teaching them how to live. I think it was Teddy Roosevelt, doesn't matter who it was because it's true, who said, uh, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. So you can be very, very smart. You can have a lot of information. You can be right. But how much stock is somebody going to put in the information that you want to share with them? Really, it depends on the relationship. Well, I'll tell you something interesting that I thought of. Well, I thought of it, so I think it's interesting. <laughs> but, uh, you, let me know if you think it's interesting. Um, 
I mentioned, I said, Teddy Roosevelt said, but who cares if, te if it's Teddy Roosevelt? Because really it's true. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. But how do we know it's okay for a rabbi to get up in shul and to say something that Teddy Roosevelt said? Okay, so there's a, <laughs> there, there's a concept that Rambam said about the... Chiefly, he said it about relying on the Greek calculations for astronomy that we use for calculating the months. And the Greeks had some pretty good calculations. And, you know, that's not something you take for granted that you should just follow the Greeks. I think we just had a whole holiday a few weeks ago, Hanukkah, right, about don't necessarily do what the Greeks do. Um, and, and, and Maimonides tells us, yeah, but it's okay. You know, they, they had some good calculations. So he says, Kabbalah sa'emes mimisha aimre. Receive the truth from, from whoever says it. So what does that mean? It means if somebody says something that's true, it doesn't matter who they are. They said it, it's true. Okay. But how do I know that I can accept something from somebody even if I don't necessarily put stock in the person, but I know what they're saying is true? How do I know that that's true? Following me? because the Rambam said it. <laughs> and I trust the Rambam. <laughs> you follow what I'm saying? So because the Rambam told me that I can trust something even if I don't trust the person but the information is verifiable, now I can trust the information. But really, if you trace it all back, it's because of my trust in the Rambam. And, and that's what I want to point out to you. Yiddishkeit, our entire Messiah, which means a chain-like, unbroken chain of, of, of transmission, going all the way back to Har Sinai. It's all about people. Moshe received from Hashem, he gave it to Yeshua, Yeshua gave it to the Zikanyim, and, and it's meticulously documented as well. And then when you learn Teter Shabal you learn the Mishnah, you learn the Gemara, every Mishnah, every Memra will tell you which Tana, which Amira. It's always the name of the sage. Why, why is this important? Why is this important? Because it's not about what you know, it's who you know. Quite literally. We accept things based on who told us this information, and do we generally feel that this is a trustworthy person? There's a, the term for this is epistemic trust. You ever heard this? This was a new term to me. I just learned this a few months ago. I'm going around saying it everywhere. <laughs> but I love this term. When I, I learned this term from uh, a few months ago um, from a, uh, a child psychologist, because uh, I mentioned that uh, when Hashem gave us the Torah, it's very interesting, and uh, the Kuzari points this out. In the first of the Ten Commandments, how does Hashem introduce himself? He introduces himself. Anoichi, I am Hashem Alekecho, okay, that's his name. Who's Hashem Mitzrayim, who took you out of Mitzrayim, who just took you out of bondage. In other words, before Hashem tells us his Torah, before he tells us his commandments, before he tells us how to live, he establishes there's a relationship, there's a context for this. Remember me? I took you out of Egypt. And the whole 
transmission of Torah is based on that. Hashem didn't say, listen, this is, this is infinite wisdom. This is Chachmas HaShalakadosh Baruch Hu. I'm just going to give it to you and judge it on its own merit. I think you'll be impressed. He didn't say that. He could have said it. He didn't. Instead, how did he frame it? He said, we've got a thing going on. I took you out of Egypt. Now, in that context, I would like to tell you some ideas about how you might live. So I mentioned this, and uh, there was a child psychologist who told me that that's called epistemic trust. In fact, I learned a, another term also, epistemic vigilance. Those are two sides of the same coin. Epistemic means like epistemology. Like we all know that word, right? Epistemology is a word you use in day-to-day -day conversation. Epistemology means <laughs> the study of the nature of truth. How do we know things are true? Epistemology is the study of how we know something is true. So epistemic trust or epistemic vigilance means to what extent I believe somebody when they tell me something that what they're telling me is true. That's epistemic trust. Epistemic vigilance is how much am I on guard when you speak to me that maybe I can't trust you. So here's the thing. Hashem himself, when he introduces himself, he invokes the epistemic trust. In our entire Masada, everything we know is all about transmission. Who taught whom? Epistemic trust. Even the fact that I can rely on the Greeks for calculations is only because the Rambam, who I trust, told me that it's okay. So here's what I want to say to you, very pointedly. Does your child know that he or she can trust you. Because if they don't, then you can be right. You can be saying the truth. You can have sources to back you up. It's not going to help. So I want to repeat myself. When your child thinks of people who are emotionally safe, people who are trustworthy, people they can go to, are you in that list? Ideally speaking, you should be at the top of that list. That doesn't diminish your authority, that only strengthens your authority. That's the great misunderstanding. Now, if, God forbid, like I said earlier, you cheapen yourself, you lower yourself, you degrade yourself by trying to get your child to be your friend. Oh, tell me I'm okay. Tell me I'm a good parent. Tell me you like me. Okay, that destroys everything because how can they trust you when you don't trust yourself? How can they feel safe when you're admitting to them how incompetent and insecure you are? Okay, but if you are their emotional rock, if you're their safe person, why would that diminish your influence? Why wouldn't that only strengthen your influence? Rav Gamliel Rabinovich from Yerushalayim, Shlita, he said very strong words. Words that you don't expect to hear necessarily from traditional Jews nowadays. And that is, when parents show derech edits to their children, oh! <gasps> Modern stuff, secular stuff, parents showing respect to their children. No, children have to respect. It's one of the Ten Commandments, right? No. So Rav Gamaliel said, when parents show derech edits to their children, what happens? It increases the parents' hashpah. 
Okay, so even if you only look at it from a utilitarian perspective, hashpah means influence. If you want to be influential in your child's life, this is how to do it. Speak respectfully. Well, I don't need to speak respectfully. Okay, you're right. Nobody can force you to speak respectfully. And in fact, because of the nature of the fifth commandment, if you're rude to your child, they're stuck. If you have, yeah, this is the nature of the, the commandment of, of Kibbutz Aim. Even dysfunctional parents can invoke that mitzvah and it will actually back them up. It is a blank check. Yeah, that's true. But then you have to ask yourself, practically speaking, if that's the way you want to treat your child, how likely is it that they're going to actually internalize what you're teaching? You'll hear some t parents who, who, who don't feel that they need to build that trust, and they'll say, well, my, my, my children do what I tell them to do. I didn't ask you, do they do what you tell them to do? That's called enforcement. If I know there's a cop giving tickets, I do slow down. That's true. But I'm asking you, when your child is raised and out of your house and living on their own, did they actually internalize the moral compass that you attempted to transmit to them? Or not? Or maybe even to the contrary, because of the ill will, maybe they've even rejected that moral compass. So I'm not asking, can you get them to do what you want them to do while you're watching? I'm not asking about, the, about enforcing behavioral compliance, which a lot of us use as sort of a, a way of, of assuring ourselves that we're doing okay. Well, I told him to do it, he did it in front of you. But I'm asking a bigger question. Did this become your child's value? Will they do this when you're not watching? Will they do this when nobody's watching? I heard a mechanic say to me, and it was heartbreaking, but I, ha I think we have to say it and own up to it and use this as motivation to be better. He said, look at our moistes, look at what we built. You know, after the Holocaust, there, there was no Jewish education in America. He says, look at all the schools that exist today. He says, but you know, well, the one thing I lament, we know how to raise great children but I'm not so sure we know how to raise great adults. Getting a child to do what you want them to do while you're watching is one thing. Actually transmitting a moral compass to the child so that when they grow up, they actually think that way, feel that way, believe that way, and then automatically behave that way. That's an entirely different skill set. Shlomo Melech spoke about it. He said, well, if you want a child to actually continue on a path even after he grows up, right, Gamki Yazkin, even when he gets old, is Chanoich Lenar Alpidarkai, connect to the child, figure out who this child is. Every individual has different needs, every individual has different ways of thinking. Have a relationship with this child, tailor make the relationship with the child, then you'll actually have transmitted something which is very different than behavioral compliance, which is relatively easy to achieve. So, let's talk more about this. What does this mean? What does this look like? What does this look like? I heard somebody once say, I think this sums it up rather well, when my child grows up and, in, and invariably gets in trouble, uh, I don't want her to say, oh no, 
my dad's going to kill me. When she gets in trouble, I want her to say, oh no, I need to call my dad. Now, we don't want our kids getting in trouble. We don't want them stressing us out. We don't want them calling us with problems. But if in the event that they do get in trouble, God forbid, do you want them hiding from you or do you want them coming to you? Ask yourself this question. Ask yourself this question. Who does your child go to when they're uncertain about things? Who does your child speak to when they're afraid? Who does your child speak to when scary things happen, when there's disappointment, when there's failure, and even moral failure that can be a a cause for, for shame? Who does your child speak to about those things? Because if the answer isn't you, then there are only two other possible answers. One possibility is the answer is no one. They have nobody to speak to, which means in that case, they are terribly alone, which should pain any parent to imagine a child being that alone. Or the other possibility is they found somebody or they think they found somebody to trust. And you don't get to pick who that is. So when they're processing whatever they're going through in life, who are they talking to? Who are they getting feedback from? And, and what are this person's values? Do you know? We're not even sure who the person is. We don't have, surely we don't know what values they have. You see what I'm saying? I, I'm coming back to the same point. The bonding is a prerequisite for the transmission of values. Because if you want your child to live according to your values, if you want your child to care about what you care about, to make decisions based on the priorities that you believe are the true and correct priorities in life, as distinct from what I was describing earlier, which is mere behavioral compliance, which they'll do in front of you, like I slow down when I see a cop and I speed right back up when I don't see a cop, or that's why I use Waze in New York even when I know where I'm going because it tells me when there's a speed trap. Right? I know if there's a camera, I don't want to speed in front of the camera. If there's no camera, I'm going to speed. They have not successfully installed that value into me. I guess I didn't feel that they cared about me so much. So then I just didn't receive it so much. They send me these $50 tickets constantly, so it's hard to feel that they care about me. I live in New York now. Can you believe that? That, that itself is so stressful, living in New York. But... God bless you guys. At least you're raising your children in a nice, calm place. Okay, you got that going for you. All right. So I, I, I love the Midwest. I'm, but, you know, I'm afraid to say too much of it because they're recording it and then it's going to go on YouTube and then the East Coast people are going to hear it and be insulted. No, the East Coast is wonderful. It's lovely. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful place. Okay. That's where my great-grandparents landed when they came from Russia. And then they left. 
<laughs> no, but I went back there, so I'm, it, New York's great. New York is fantastic. Okay, I love New York. Okay. <laughs> um, what are they even talking about? Oh, the camera tickets. Okay, but what I'm saying is, you follow what I'm saying? The bonding isn't just because it's pleasant. The bonding isn't just because it feels good. The bonding is, how are you going to transmit your values to your child if you're not the go-to person? How's that even going to happen? Yeah, maybe you can, until they get old enough to hide better or to, to, to leave the house, that you could, you could enforce some degree of behavioral compliance, at least while you're watching. But to actually install values into this child that they should actually care they're only going to care about the things you care about when they know that you care about them. That's just how it works. That's how people work. And there's no way to hack this, this fact of human psychology. That's the way Hashem made our brains. So there's no way around it. Uh, there's an incredible... I just want to read this to you. I wrote it down because I couldn't memorize the words yet. But Rav Avram Shor Shlita, who's the son of Rav Gedalia, Zatzal. So he wrote a sefer, Halakha Chvalibov. And he wrote there such, I, I just, I wrote it down because the words were so powerful. Iker Hanakuda. He says, What is parenting? What is Chinuch? Iker Hanakuda, like the, the main essential point. Shiargishu Habonim Esho Ahava Hagdela Sheyesh Lohedim Livnehem. Is that the children should feel doesn't say they should know. They should feel the great love that the parents have for them. And that the children feel that the parents are ready to give up, to sacrifice, to forego everything for the sake of their children. Oh no, you're going to raise entitled children. They're going to be brats. They think the world revolves around them. Their parents are ready to sacrifice everything for them. No, no, no. I, I want to do authentic Jewish parenting. I'm going to let my kid know I won't do anything for him. Right? Does that make sense to you? Okay. So, Halakha Chvalibov continues. V'zeh mekasher esam. This is the key term here. V'zeh, this, what we described, that the children feel loved. And not just love. They feel love to the point of mesiras nefesh, where the parents are ready to give up everything because of their love for their child. That's what a parent, what is a parent? What's a mother? What's a father? A mother, a father, someone who's ready to give their own life so that their child could have just a little bit better life. That's what we are. Don't resist that. Don't deny that. And certainly not in the name of Yiddishkeit. When Yiddishkeit is telling us the exact opposite. So he says, when the children are margish, when they feel that love, that, that love to the extent of being ready to give up everything, the parents are ready to give up everything, then what happens? It's very simple. This connects them. It connects the children to the parents. To receive whatever the parent request. Notice he doesn't say order, but request of them. So it's very simple. 
Don't tell me, well, this isn't a popularity contest. I don't need my kids to like me. Okay, no, you don't need that. You're right. And if you're talking about your self-esteem, get it from somewhere else. Preferably, if you're a God-fearing Jew, your self-esteem should come from the fact that Hashem loves you and that you're a neshama and that you are infinitely precious. Okay, so no, you don't need, on a personal level, you don't need your kids to like you. Obviously, God forbid, that's sick, that's twisted. But from a practical point of view, you have a mitzvah. You have to get your children to know how to live and to actually buy into it and actually care about what they're supposed to care about. Okay, so how's that going to happen? How's that going to happen? That's going to happen when they know that you are ready to give up everything for their happiness. That doesn't raise entitled children, spoiled brats, self-absorbed children. That's not what happens. Most self-absorbed people I see are people who grew up emotionally insecure. No, when you raise a child to feel emotionally safe, what happens is they're ready to receive. Now, I'm going to say something that you probably go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. And that is, that if you do all the emotional bonding and making your child feel safe, and then you don't actually model values for them, that's not going to work either. You have to do both. You have to do both. But, and listen, I want to tell you something. I was thinking the other day, I was just actually, I was speaking to a father, and I was telling him, if I would be Hashem, I would be the most liberal Hashem. Because I would say, I would, I'm telling you, what I would do is if a, if a parent did one or the other, I would give it to them. Like, either they were really emotionally bonded with their kid, okay, but they forgot to model good values, but I would say, you know what, let their kids turn out well, you know. Or they did the opposite. They modeled good values, but they didn't have that connection. I would say, also give it to them. But in his infinite wisdom, Hashem has determined the way it works is we got to do both. So we have to live according to our values. And I want to strongly encourage parents to uh, meet together, co-parents, Mother and a father should get together and discuss your values. And especially if you belong to a religious community. Because, I'll tell you why. Um, very often we lean on that to save us from doing any actual thinking. And we're not really sure what our values are. Because we live in a community that sort of demand certain standards, and sometimes we could mistake that for actually having values. It doesn't really mean that we have values. Values means uh, what you care about. So it's not just what you do. It's why you do it. It's not just what you do. It's why you think what you're doing is important. And a real value means something that you're even ready to give up your life for. Or maybe better stated, something you're ready to live your life for. And that's very important. Parents should speak about that. What are our values? And don't just say, well, whatever it says in Torah. <laughs> like, no. 
What are your core values? Every family has their signature. You know, there's Zahir Tfei. The Gemara speaks about the idea of a Zahir Tfei, a mitzvah that you, you especially shine in. So every family has that mitzvah or mitzvahs that are their signatures. So you really want to speak about that. You want to talk about what are our values? What do we care about? Whether it's Avas um, Yisrael or it's uh, uh, learning or it's uh, compassion for others or uh, working on yourself, always improving or, or humility or, or tzedakah or having an open home. These are conversations you want to have with your co-parent. Okay, but again, like I said, there's two components. There's the values. There's what you're modeling in your home, what you're living in your home. And then there's the emotional connection and the emotional safety that actually causes the children who live in that home to absorb those values and to take those values on as their own. So, what, what does this look like? Practically speaking, how do I know if I'm emotionally bonded to my child? Rav Levi Yitzchak once said that I learned what Avas Yisrael is from two drunks. The Bedechever went into a kretschma, into an inn, a tavern, to collect funds. He was always involved in Pidin Shvoyim and redeeming captives, so he was often collecting money, and in the course of collecting money, he would sometimes go into unsavory places. So he went into uh, the kretschma, and there are people drinking and doing whatever they do, and he overheard two drunks, two non-Jewish drunks who were arguing with each other. And, um, you know, some drunks become mean, fighting drunks. Other drunks become lovey drunks. So apparently that's how one of these guys was. He was a lovey drunk. And he was saying to his friend, most probably in Ukrainian, but Tichev is in Ukraine, um, I love you. I love you. And his friend, who was also drunk, says to him, no, no, you don't love me. And he doubled down. He says, no, I love you. I love you. No, you don't love me. You don't love me. I love you. No, you don't love me. I love you. No, you don't love me. Back and forth, back and forth. Until finally, the second one says to the first one, if you love me, then why don't you know what hurts me? So the Bedechev says, from this, from this moment, I had a whole new understanding of Avas Yisro. What does it mean? To love your fellow as yourself. It can mean a lot of things. But the Bedechev said, if you love somebody, why don't you know what hurts them? So I'll ask you this question. You know, we all have things that keep us up at night. We all, uh, I call it the museum, the mental museum that we visit, that we are curators of. It's not a feel-good museum, by the way. It's very depressing, which it's, it's designed to be depressing. Um, 
So yeah, we are the curators and the, and the only visitor. <laughs> and we run the gift shop and charge $5 for a Coke. <laughs> Just to rub it in, to add insult to injury. But yeah, we have this museum in our minds where we go, where, you know, when we're worrying, maybe even worrying about our children. Or other things that we worry about, health and money and who knows what we worry about. So you know what keeps you up at night. Simple question I want to ask you. Do you know what keeps each of your children up at night? When your child is up and she can't sleep, what, what, what's bothering her? And maybe when they're really little, you'll say, oh, I know. She thinks there's a monster in her closet. We checked that out. There's no, there's no monster in the closet. Okay. So with a three-year-old, you know what she's worried about at night. And by the way, the monster in the closet is not really the monster in the closet. There's something behind that as well. But even that is an okay answer because at least she still, she still tells you what she's worried about. That, 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 that itself is an oof too. She told you. Some three-year-olds don't tell their parents that they think there's a monster in the closet. Because they can't trust their parents. Maybe their parent is the monster in the closet. Yeah, that, that happens. Thank God it's not common. It's common enough. It does happen. But let's say in a normal situation where the three-year-old tells mommy and daddy, I'm worried about the monster in my closet. Okay, that's when she was three. What about when she's five? She's seven. She's nine. She's 11. What about when she's 21? She's still your baby. Your job didn't end. So what keeps her up at night? Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you should leave the lecture tonight and get on your phone and start calling your kids and say, what keeps you up at night? <laughs> I don't mean that. That'd be very, very awkward, very clumsy, very heavy-handed. What I'm saying is, that if you love somebody, then, then automatically you know what hurts them. It's not an interrogation, it's not the KGB. You're not trying to put together a file on this person. It is the direct, automatic, natural outcome of sharing a life together. But a lot of times we, we, we share a life together in proximity. We're all living under one roof. That doesn't really mean that we're sharing a life on an emotional level. I heard a comedian say, how do you call a family meeting in 2023? You unplug the router and you wait and then you're gonna have a family meeting. <laughs> one by one, hey, what happened? Um, when we're bonded, then we know what's going on in each other's lives. So this is not a questionnaire to ask your child, um, who's your best friend? Uh, what are you excited about right now in school? Um, what are you nervous about in school? Um, what do you think about uh, when you imagine your plans for the summer? It's not a questionnaire. These are just natural things for you 
sort of self-evaluation to ask yourself, how much of these things do I know about? And as a father, I just, I want to say that sometimes the expectations, and I hope I'm not making excuses for myself, but sometimes the expectations for fathers and mothers should be different. Like there's a mother setting of this, and then there's like a father setting, which is a different uh, level of difficulty. Like you ask the mothers in this room, like what's the name of your, your, your daughter's teacher this year? They all know, okay? You ask the father, what's, what's your daughter's teacher's name? There's more or something, she's very good. <laughs> I know, she's good. Our other daughter had her, she was good. <laughs> it was, okay, I, my wife knows, okay? You wanna... Anyone else have the, the, the shameful experience when you go to the drugstore and they ask you for the birth dates? Oh my goodness. To... <laughs> and I always, you know what, do you use the same excuse that I use? I say, well, we're Jewish, I know the Hebrew dates. <laughs> I know the Hebrew dates, okay? Not negligent. I know the Hebrew dates. I got to look up. Just give me a second. I got to got to look up the bracha. What's <laughs> what's Chaya's birthday? Okay. All right. May fifth. I knew that it was May fifth. Okay. But at any rate, so there may be different levels that are expected for fathers and mothers, and I don't think that's sexist, or maybe it is sexist to say it. But I think it's okay. I think that's okay. I'm not implying that mothers and fathers have to have the exact same type of relationship. That's why Hashem made it, that there's a mother and a father. So there are different types of relationships. But the, the main thing is that our children know that we care about their lives and that when they want to process things, what is childhood all about? What do you do in childhood? Childhood is a series of first-time experiences. That's what childhood is. Childhood is one big trial and error where you do tons of things for the first time ever and then try to make sense of what just happened. So how do you make sense of what happened? Preferably in an ideal situation by speaking to a trusted, reliable adult who will then use each of those experiences that you just went through as a learning experience to reinforce values. So that's the question. It's not about go find out all of these pieces of information about your child. It, it, this, this, is, this is an indication for yourself. This is just for self-evaluation. How can I make sure that I'm available enough? How do I make sure that I'm actually my child's go-to person? So if you're just, you want a, a quick way of, of, of checking, checking in on yourself, so ask yourself these questions. Okay, but the, the, I'll give you another way that you could evaluate yourself. Um, you know, children can pick the worst possible times for initiating conversations. And sometimes I think they do it strategically to avoid something, right? Wait, hold on, I wanted to ask you about something. All of a sudden you're asking me because it's bedtime, because we need to get in the car right now. Now you want to have a DMC, right? Deep, meaningful conversation. But here's what I want to ask you. Oh boy, this is, this is tough to say this. I know a guy very wealthy, very successful guy. Everybody wants to be this guy. This guy hates his life. 
literally hates his life because he has a 19-year-old son who lives in his house and they haven't spoken in a year. Okay? And he said to me, I would take all the money in my bank account right now. And he said a number. It was a big number. And I know it was a real number. And I would give it to anyone who could get my son to have a conversation with me. I would pay anything. And he wasn't saying I'd pay anything in the theoretical sense. This is a guy who said a number. It was a big number. Seven figures. I would give that money right now. Wire that money wherever you want me to wire it. He says to me, how come I didn't know how much I would pay for those conversations? All of the times he came to me and I told him I'm busy, I have something else to do. If I would have known I was ready to pay millions of dollars for that conversation, I would have never let it go. I'm not trying to scare anyone or guilt anyone, but I, I, I am asking you to just think about the fact that even in the best case scenario, where a child remains bonded with parents, they do grow up and they do, Baruch Hashem, this is healthy, they get their own lives. And we do, even in the best case scenario, we miss those opportunities. We look back and we, like, wistfully, sentimentally at those times. Or even more so at the, at the lost opportunities where we didn't take advantage of those, of those times for, for conversing with our children. So what I'm asking you is this. If your child wants to talk, are you ready to show them like Rav Avram Shor says, that we're ready to be mafkir, that we're literally ready to sacrifice and give up everything else for them, for our children. Who else is more important? Who else do you have to talk to right now? What possibly is more important? Is it another person? Is it, is it, is it a job? Is it money? Is it a hobby? Is it... Or even, dare I say, Tyro. Because what value is our Tyro if we can't transmit it to our children? And how can we transmit it to them if they don't come to us? And this, I will say, is different in this generation. I think, I hope I made my case that love and warmth and bonding is not a new thing, it's not a modern thing, it's basic Yiddishkeit. But I'll tell you something that is new, that's a curious new development of this unusual time that we live in right before Mashiach comes. And that is that today our children have many options. The world is very open. 
whether that's because there's less anti-Semitism on, on, on an unprecedented level, whatever we think about anti-Semitism anti today, it's nothing what our, to, to compared to what our great-grandparents experienced. Where, where they were stuck. They couldn't leave the community. There was nowhere to go, okay? Or, or because of technology. Technology has opened up worlds. And I want to tell you the scariest thing that technology has opened up, it's not... I'm sorry to say this, I, 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 I hope nobody will be offended. The scariest thing to me that technology opened up is not that children will see things that are inappropriate and not modest because we were exposed to that as well. Now obviously the volume and the accessibility is, is very different, but what's unprecedented that I don't think existed when we were kids and exists today when our kids are kids is the access they have to support systems, or the illusion of a support system, community, people who they think care about them and have their best interests at heart. That today is a new development. So if a child doesn't feel that their emotional safety and their strongest bond and therefore their identity, identity, this is all about identity, who is my tribe? My tribe is Whoever I feel has my back, and that makes me who I am. That's my identity. So when a child doesn't feel that safety in the community, in their home, in their relationship with a parent, then they don't have that identity, and they go looking for their tribe and for their identity, and there's an insane amount of just endless, endless, endless places where children, even today, adults, adults being radicalized online just because of what? Because the ideas were so compelling? No. One thing, which is the most basic human need, they wanted a place to belong. They wanted, who are my people? Who's got me? Who cares about me? Now, we can't control the whole community. You can send your kid to a good school, which is a loving school, so that helps. We can't control the whole community. We can't make sure that our child will feel, ideally we want them to feel, but we can't control they're going to feel that growing up in the Jewish community, that's my tribe, those people have my back, those people care about me, they're not using me to the contrary, they're, they're, they're there to support me. That's the ideal. But if we can't control that, and we really can't control it, what we can control is that under our roof, the feeling of warmth and love and acceptance has to be so undeniable that no matter what will happen, our children will be immune to that lure of false acceptance that they will find out there because when they'll compare it to what they've had their whole lives, they find anything else to be hollow. Why would I want a stranger's love when I have the love of my parents? The people who know everything about me. And that's part of it. The people who know everything about me. And still accept me. Now you're going to say, I'm a religious Jew. How can I do that? I do have standards. What do you want me to do? Ultimately, there is, there is a limit to where my child's behaviors will just make it impossible for me to accept them. So I want to talk about that for a second. Let's talk about this. And my answer to this is not to ignore Torah, but 
to look in Torah and see what Torah says. Because I think a lot of things we say in the name of religion are not what Torah is really saying. And a lot of parent-child relationships were unnecessarily destroyed in the name of something that God never said he wanted. There's a madrash, Tana de Velio, that speaks uh, about Hashem had two things before creation, before the world. In fact, that's the first, first Rashi and Chumash. Bereshis is base reishis, bishvil base reishis. That the world was created for two things that pre-existed the world. What two things pre-existed the world? Torah and Yisrael. Very good. Okay, so I know, the Tonid Vilio, which is a, a medrash from an Amira, says, I know that, or teachings from Elio and Navi were transmitted to an Amira. I know that Torah and Yisrael came before the world. They both came before the world. But which came before which? Interesting question. First of all, which came before which? The world wasn't created yet, there was no time. So what does that mean, which came before which? So we're not talking about Kedimus Hazman, we're talking about Kedimus Hamayle. Which comes before which doesn't mean chronologically, there was no chronology. Which came before which means which one serves which? Which one exists for the sake of which? Good question, right? And what I'm saying is not just a philosophical question about things that were going on before the world was created. It's, it's a question for right now. Which one is which? Which one defines which? Am I Jewish because I do mitzvahs or do I do mitzvahs because I'm Jewish? Is my child Jewish because they do mitzvahs? Or does my child do mitzvahs because he or she is Jewish? It's a big difference. If they'll stop doing mitzvahs, do they stop being Jewish? So the Tonad Vilio says, or, or why do I say it such, in such black and white terms? If they do less mitzvahs, did they become a little less Jewish, and therefore I have a little less love for them. And therefore it becomes harder to show that love and that bonding, because if, when they're tzaddikim and they behave well, okay, then it's a, a virtuous circle. They're giving me nachas, I'm able to be happy with them, they feel safe and bonded, and then they do more of the values that I'm teaching them, yay, that's great, and if that's the situation, it should only continue. But what if you hit a rough patch? That's what I'm asking. So I know Torah and Yisrael came before the world. They both came before the world. Which comes before which? So the Tanir Vilyo says a marshal, parable, about a king. Who do you think the king is? Hashem, of course. And the king had children. And he wanted to teach his children drochim noim pleasant ways. He wanted to teach them the right way to live. 
So he hired a malamed, a teacher, to teach his children. Says the Tone de Vilio. Did the father have children because he needed a job for this malamed? Or did he get a malamed because he had children he needed to teach? The malamed is the Torah, the children are the Jews. The Torah came along for the sake of the Jews. And hence we see the Torah speaks about the Jews who already exist. Dabr al-Bnei Yisrael. Speak to the children of Israel. Tzavas b'nei Israel, Command the children of Israel. The Torah references the Jews because the Jews already exist. And maybe you think, this is, uh, well, this degree of tolerance, this is a bridge too far. A, a person who really cares about Torah won't speak this way. I don't know anyone who cared more about Torah than Meisha Rabbeinu, to the extent that Torah is called Teras Meisha. And Meisha Rabbeinu told Hashem that if you don't forgive my people, take me out of your book. Meisha Rabbeinu understood what Torah is. And he understood that if you really care about Torah, if you really have Avasa Torah, you have to have Avas Yisrael. So here's the thing. There's such a thing as Nachas Ruch Lafon Hashem speaks about the fact that when you do what I tell you to do, I enjoy it. Even if it's something like Karbonis. It's a reich nichayach. It smells ple- uh, pleasant to me. How, Rashi says, could it really be pleasant? Burning skins are, are so pleasant. Yeah, the, the pleasantness is, I told you what to do. You did what I told you to do. I have nachasuch from that. Nachasuch lofana shamartiv nasaratayin. Okay. So there's such a thing as, I told my kid what to do. He did it. Oh, feels good. That's a real thing. Sai, how Hashem feels about us. Both how Hashem feels about us as well as how we feel about our children. It's a real thing. But then there's a deeper concept as well. Hashem says about the Jewish people, your nation are entirely righteous. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands. To take pride, to take pride in. Hashem says, I am proud of the Jewish people. All of them. All of them. Proud of them. I get proud of all of them. They're all giving you nachas. You don't understand. It's two, two types of nachas. Nachas I have nachas from you. You did what I told you to do. Sometimes you do what I told you to do. Sometimes you don't. So that nachas fluctuates. That nachas is conditional nachas. And it's based on what you do. And sometimes you do what you're supposed to do. Sometimes you don't. But then there's another type of nachas which is unconditional. It's essential. Essential is the proper word for it. And therefore it does not waver. It doesn't change. And that's not based on what you do for Hashem. That's based on what Hashem did in making you. So Hashem says, Sometimes I get that nachas, sometimes I don't. Hopefully, we'll give it to him more often than not. 
The goal is to give it to him all the time, obviously. You learn Tanya, Sefer Shobedin, it tells you you're supposed to have the level of, at least your goal is the level is supposed to, do, to, to only do mitzvahs, to never do Avedas. Of course, 100%, that's the goal. But then there's something else. Hashem says, I'm proud of the Jewish people because I made them. My pride is not in what they've done. My pride is in what I've accomplished in making my people, my children. B'ni b'chayri, Yisroh. So we have to understand, yes, there is such a thing as my child's behaviors terrified me, disappointed me, made me sick. Yeah, it exists. There is such a thing. We're not denying it. And conversely, my child's behaviors were heartwarming, were, 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 I admired what they did, I respected what they did, I told the whole shul what my kid did, I got a bumper sticker on the back of my car what my kid did. Okay. That's a real thing, but then there's the unconditional pride. And no, it's not just unconditional love. Ten years ago, you'd say unconditional love, everyone would say, hold on a second, you're pushing it. No, basically everyone understands unconditional love. I'm saying I'm pushing the envelope. And really, it's, the concept is, is, is 2,000 years old. My Yodelihispoir unconditional pride that even when you're not proud of your child's actions stop a second contemplate the fact this is a neshama do you know what a neshama is can you even fathom what a neshama is no you can't me neither and that's precisely what is so awesome about it this isn't just some little kid some little person running around in your house and you get to boss them around this is some eternal transcendent being from another realm who has come to visit the physical world and you were given the precious duty of being the steward to facilitate that being's transition into embodiment and to give it firm footing to get used to what it's like to be an embodied soul down here in the physical world because it's not an easy transition but Hashem picked you Hashem knew that you had what it takes to be the welcoming committee to be the the Walmart greeter to say come on in come to this world I'll help you I'll help you get acclimated I'm going to take care of you I'm going to provide you you're my baby I'm going to take care of you I'm going to give you everything you need I'm going to give you what to eat. I'm going to give you, I'll give you a place to sleep. and give you a warm, a warm clothing. I'll give you a blanket. I'm, I'm going to hold you. I'm going to rock you. And I'm going to make you feel safe. And as you grow and your needs become more complicated and more sophisticated, and it's not enough anymore just to hold you and rock you, although please don't stop holding and rocking your children. Baruch Hashem, I just married off my, my first... Child, my oldest child, my Bas Trila Semenyof Labonim, my first child, my daughter. And I want to tell you something. I, I've said it before, you know, in theory, now I can tell you in practice. But even when you marry them off, they don't stop being your baby. And baby means you hold them. You hold them. Okay, but they have, they have you hold them. They have to feel your embrace. 
especially fathers, I'm telling you, especially fathers of sons, when your bachar comes home from yeshiva, I'm begging you to hug him. I'm begging you, because I told you there's a big world out there. And if he doesn't have that soothing, safe warmth in your arms, you think he's a robot? He's a machine. And even if he doesn't go out seeking it in the wrong places, it creates dysfunction in an organism not to have those basic needs met. It's not healthy. Just like you're paying all that tuition that he should learn all day. Okay, so part of that is hug him when he comes home. That doesn't even cost money. So we're here to love our children, to nurture them, to give them warmth. This isn't modern secular psychology. This is basic Yiddishkeit. This is basic Yiddishkeit. You care about the Torah being transmitted to another generation. This is how it works. Epistemic trust. We have to win their trust. And trust means I'm emotionally safe. And they're going to test those boundaries. They're going to see if they can cause us to lose respect for them. And we have to have these things very clear in our minds. There's my reaction to the behavior. I don't have to co-sign every behavior. I, I have values. For myself, I don't co-sign all my behaviors. Even though I did it, so ostensibly I thought I was doing the right thing. But even at maturity is the ability to be appalled with your own behaviors. So I can be appalled by my own behaviors. But that doesn't change my child's essential identity. And what is their essential identity? I'm sorry to invoke the spiritual. I'm sorry to invoke the metaphysical. You have to see them as an ashama. You have to see them as this otherworldly, precious being with infinite worth and unconditional worth and inherent worth. Infinite worth, that means there's no limit to how worthy your child is. How, what price can you put on the value of a life, a soul? A chelek elekamimau. Infinite worth. Unconditional, unconditional worth. They can't lose their worth. Even when their behaviors are not behaviors that we have nachas from, their worth, their identity is unconditional. It cannot change. And they have to know that. And if they know nothing else about Yiddishkeit, they have to know who they are and that they cannot diminish their worth. In fact, not only they can't diminish their worth, they can't add to it either. If you do the right thing, when you do what your father told you to do, you don't become more of your father's child. Your behaviors become more of a reflection of who you are, but you don't become more of who you already are. It's like 
When we go out on the street corners, especially when I was a bacher in 770, we used to, I had a spot in Manhattan, and people would, excuse me, sir, are you Jewish? And try to put on filling with people on the street corner, and they would say, oh, you're trying to make me Jewish. I, I would say, you just told me you are Jewish. How <laughs> am I going to make you something that you already are? You don't, you don't understand. I'm not offering you the mitzvah to make you something that you, you're not. I'm offering you the mitzvah as an opportunity that what you do should be aligned with who you already are. So that's what it means. It's unconditional and, and intrinsic. Intrinsic worth. Intrinsic worth means, for goodness sake, our children should not feel that their value comes from outside of themselves. There are children who live their lives feeling like they're on probation, feeling like they do not have a spot in their home or, by extension, within the Jewish people. And they're constantly trying to earn that spot. No, you have inherent, intrinsic value. You are a neshama. Your value comes from within. It is inherent. It is intrinsic. You don't have to go out anywhere to acquire it. All you have to do is be. And yes, with proper chinuch, with proper education, transmitting the values, teaching our children how to live, then what will we accomplish? We'll accomplish that who they are and will always be actually comes out in what they do. But they aren't who they are because of what they do. They do what they do because of who they are. I'll say it again. <laughs> they aren't who they are because of what they do. They do what they do because of who they are. I'm not Jewish because I do mitzvahs. I do mitzvahs because, because I'm Jewish. Because doing mitzvahs is the most faithful, natural, organic expression of my, of my deepest identity. It's who I am, and when I'm aligned with who I am, and I know who I am, and my identity is solid, and my place in my family is solid, my place in Klal Yisrael is solid, then it's just the most natural thing that mitzvahs will just come out. I'll just exude godly behaviors in alignment, in alignment with my godly essence. Tell you one more thought. It says in Shochan Aruch, the laws of Kibbutzave, in uh, Yeredeya Rishmen 240. There's a lot of laws there, obviously, as you would expect. Kibbutzave, laws of honoring your parents, a lot of laws for children, what they have to do for parents. But there are some laws also for parents, what they have to do for children. So what, what, what does Shulchan Aruch tell us? What does the Mechaber tell us? And uh, this, is, this is also based on the Rambam, Hilchas Mamrim, which is in turn is based on the Gemara in Kiddushin. Shulchan Aruch tells us very strong words. Asur. Asur means prohibited. It's not a suggestion. Osr la adam, la hachbid ulai, ulai means his oil, his yoke, like you put a yoke on an animal. La hachbid means to make it covered, to make it too heavy. It is forbidden for a person, meaning a parent, 
to make the yoke heavy, Albonov, and his children. This is Shulchan Aruch. This is a halacha, like, like meat and milk. Like not driving on Shabbos. This is, this is halacha. It is forbidden to make an excessively heavy burden on your children. Well, what does that mean, a heavy burden? Uladaktik to be over exacting regarding the covet that they the honor that they owe you. See, I've seen so many tragic victims of well-intending parents who invoked that Kibbutzava Ain card, thinking they were doing the right thing. And they read what it said on the tablets. They didn't read what Shulchan Aruch has in the, uh, the asterisk, the, what do you call it, terms and conditions. We're Yidin, we have a Tereshe B'chsav and a Tereshe Balpeh. So you have to, if you don't consult Shulchan Aruch, and you just go straight to the Bible, you might uh, make some mistakes here. Which is maybe why, by the way, Jews, as I began saying when we started that Jews have traditionally had such uniquely warm relationships with their children more than the other cultures around us because they don't, they don't have the Shulchan Aruch to teach them this. So the Shulchan Aruch says, do not overly require that, that COVID, which is a mitzvah after all. The child has a mitzvah to give you that COVID. But it's a very interesting mitzvah the degree to which they are mechoyev depends on subjectively how you will require it from them. Shaloi yeviyem lidei michshel that you should not chas v'shalom bring them to a, a michshel, a stumbling block. In other words, it's, it's a funny mitzvah. If you require something from your child and you tell them, that is kibbutz aim. Hashem has to back you up. And now your child will be doing an Aveda if they don't do what you ask them to do, even if it's a crazy thing. We have the stories of Dabba ben Nasina that Meisha Feinstein explains that, uh, that, that, that Dabba ben Nasina's parents were not, were not well. They were emotionally ill. And the reason that Chazal used those stories is to bring out that point. So unfortunately, if a parent does say this is a matter of kibbutz aim, it becomes one. But if you're smart and you're God-fearing and you're sensitive, then you realize, hold on a second, Shulchan is giving, giving me very good advice here. Do not make this a matter of kibbutz aim. And it, actually, to bring them to a michshel means it becomes your fault. It becomes your fault. And he concludes and he says, that a father who forgoes the honor due to him the honor that's due to him is effectively released very interesting halacha so there's a word from the B'nai Yisoscher not from the Sefer B'nai Yisoscher from the Sefer Agra de Kala from uh, Tzvi Eli Melech Dinever. He, he, he writes over there, he says, 
How does tshuva work? He says, L'chayr tshuva shouldn't work. Because it, it, it's very simple. Hashem gave us a bunch of laws. He told us what to do. What part of thou shalt not did you not understand, right? So now you want to do tshuva. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Should have been sorry before you did it, not after you did it. What can I do? These are my laws. I, it's not like I surprised you. I told you the laws. So the Agra de Kala asks, really, seemingly, tshuva shouldn't work. And in fact, he says, the Gemara in uh, Ksubas, Daf Yudzayin Omar Aleph says, that melech ha that a melech, a king, who says, it's okay, it's okay, you, you, could, you could commit high treason, I forgive you. Doesn't work. Because there's a certain... Uh, there's a certain station that the Melech represents. He doesn't have that prerogative, even if he wants to. So this is the question of the Agra Dekala, how Tshuva could even work. So what does he answer? He says, it's good for us that Hashem is not only a Melech, he's also a father. And in fact, first and foremost, he's Avinu Malkeno. Yeah, he's a king, but he's our father our king. And So the entire concept of tshuva, the ability that we have as neshamas, that even when we stray from our father, we can come back home, is only because he's not only a king, he's our tati. Because that's what a tati is. The ultimate archetype of a father, Hashem himself, is one who sets aside his honor to let his children come back even when they mess up, especially when they mess up. And he doesn't stand on ceremony. And that's what a, a father and a mother are in, in the human realm. Al-achas kama v'kama. How much more so if that's what Hashem is. If Hashem can forgo his honor. What do you think a father or a mother is? Your child only has one father and one mother. You are the place. You are the place. When they come back home, and I stress the word back, when they've strayed, as we all do at some point, to some degree, some more, some less, some in scarier ways, some in more benign ways, when they come back home, you are home. You are their identity. You are how they know what it means to be who they are. So your relationship with them is not just any old relationship. It's not just two people getting along. It's not just two people getting along. You are their path and their, 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 their portal to connecting to themselves and to their neshama and to Hashem himself. So tell me that you can afford that you can afford 
to play around with that relationship. And in, in the name of propriety, in the name of things you think you've heard, you're going to be standoffish, you're going to be cold, you're going to be distant. We can't afford that. And if you really understood who your child was, a neshama, and you really understood what that means, And I don't think from one speech we get it. I think it's, an, it's a meditation we have to do every single day. Every single night, think about each of your children. Think about them as neshamas. Think about your child when he or she was a baby, the first time you laid eyes on them. You remember. And they were perfect. What was perfect? They didn't do anything yet. Why don't you tell them, listen, baby, you're cute, but most babies are cute. Why don't you grow up, learn how to talk, we'll go out for coffee, and we'll see if we hit it off. Why don't we say that to our babies? Why do we look at our babies and automatically accept them as perfect? And I think the reason is the same reason when people pass away, all of a sudden they all become tzaddikim. After they die, you only say holy things about them. Because when people first arrived to this worldly plane, or when they've just left the worldly plane, we remember that they're neshamas, at least on an unconscious level. After a while, we get used to seeing you in a body and we start mistaking you for your body. And then we start judging you and valuing you based on accidents of the body. Things like, if you're good looking, or if you're smart, or if you're neurotypical, or if you have an easier temperament, or more difficult temperament, all these things are accidents of the body. Meaning to say, it's not the child's essence. It's not the child's essence. The essence is the neshama, which this time around has come into this body with this color hair and these color eyes and this type of brain wiring and, and, and this type of uh, learning challenge and this type of emotional challenge. But the essence of the child is the neshama, which is unchanging. When you saw your baby in the crib, you did not put conditions on your love and your acceptance of that child. And I'm saying to you, I believe that there's something deeper than just babies being cute. I believe it's because we are tuned in at that moment to the fact that a soul has just come to this world and souls, come on, how could you reject a soul? So think about your child 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later. They never stop being that soul. And they never stop being worthy of our respect and our awe and our love and our completely non judgmental acceptance.
And none of that is bestira, none of that contradicts our holy obligation to teach them Torah and teach them how to live. None of it is in contradiction to that. To the contrary, it's not a contradiction. That's what makes it possible. That's what makes the whole thing possible. You want them to know how to live? You want them to believe you're the address? to come to, to learn how to live. So just see them as a soul. You don't have to tell them these words. Some people choose to speak this way. I don't know if that's not the way you normally talk. I think maybe you'll scare your kids. It'll be kind of awkward if you're not like a spiritual person who speaks that way. But I'm saying in your own private meditation, think about the task that Hashem has given you, the holy obligation that Hashem has given you to take care of these souls. And how awesome, literally awesome, it should fill us with awe to even attempt to wrap our minds around, which ultimately we cannot, what kind of a being has come to spend its formative years under our roof. And then you do your meditation, You'll see them as they really are. You'll feel that love. You'll feel that awe. It'll be natural to want to connect to them. It'll be natural to want to be there for them. It'll be natural to take interest in their lives. It'll be natural to support them when they messed up and to help them work it through. These things will be natural. And then you know what else becomes natural? That if you're modeling the right way to live, and again, if you're modeling the right way to live. It'll be natural, pleasant, sweet for them to live the way that we know is the right way to live. Hashem gave us a big job, but He knows what He's doing, He knows who He chose. And we can do it. We have to do it. We're going to do it. I want to wish everyone here tremendous clarity in your parenting that you should see your children as they really are and they should see themselves as they are and then be empowered to live in alignment with that and then the world will see your children as they really are. Okay, thank you and good night.